Now to climate change in the United States and new obstacles thrown up by the Supreme Court. It has just ruled to curb the Environmental Protection Agency's ability to regulate carbon emissions. This comes amid a period of extreme weather around the world, with over 40 million Americans under heat alerts last week. Christy Ebay has been researching the health risks of climate change for decades, and she tells Hari Srinivasan that response systems must be improved to prevent more deaths. This conversation is part of the ongoing public media initiative, Peril and Promise, on the challenges and the solutions to climate change. Christian, thanks. Professor Christy Ebay, thanks so much for joining us. We just had um, a result from the Supreme Court that says that the Environmental Protection Agency does not have that broad authority to regulate coal-fired power plants and shift them towards cleaner sources, that they have to tailor a specific uh, kind of uh, a proposition to individual power plants. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, what does this sort of a ruling do to our efforts to fight climate change? This is, needless to say, a very disappointing ruling, and it's out of step with the understanding of the climate science, and it's out of step, frankly, with where our economy is going. We know that the number of jobs of one of the fastest growing sectors is all in renewables. The costs of renewables have dropped significantly. Uh, an announcement that got very little press was when all the major auto companies said they're going to get out of internal combustion engines. Industry's moving on. Industry understands the future, needs to reduce emissions of greenhouse gases, and industry's moving towards that. We know that the coal industry is dying out in the U.S. It's no longer economical. That renewable, the cost of renewables have dropped significantly. Giving and recognizing that EPA has that authority would have helped move this transition faster. Delaying this means that we are going to continue as a nation to significantly contribute to the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. We're going to continue to damage the health and well-being of Americans and of people around the world. And it's a very disappointing ruling. We are hearing a headline here, a headline there about more often than not, homeless people who are dying in extreme heat conditions in the United States. And you and climate researchers around the world are telling us that this is going to be normal, that the temperatures are increasing, but that these deaths are preventable. This is a very important issue. Our temperatures are rising. We're seeing more, more intense and longer heat waves. And those who are most vulnerable including the unhoused, unless we do more to protect them, are expected to die in increasing numbers as we have these more heat waves, higher summer temperatures. Just the other day, we had dozens of people die in the back of a trailer. They were being smuggled across the border. And again, there are lots of causes for this, but ultimately what led to their death was the heat mm -hmm. inside that trailer. And that's not something that we heard about 10 years ago or 15 years ago, nearly at the same rates that we're hearing about today. And I'm wondering, this combined with the stories of unhoused people dying in extreme heat, is this part of what's going to be normal for us to hear 
as the summers get hotter? If we don't make any changes, then yes. But we knew we really do have to start thinking differently about our future. It is going to be hotter. And when you think about so many activities, so many policies we have, all of them were developed just assuming that the weather is constant. That is no longer the case. And people don't factor that into decisions, the human smuggling, which is just a huge tragedy in many dimensions. They don't think about the weather. They don't think about what that could mean for all those poor people in the back of that truck. So unless we can really move our policies, unless we can recognize the interconnectedness interconnectedness of all of our vulnerabilities, that there's, as you said, lots of reasons for human smuggling, we need to address those. We need to address ways to ensure that people can stay in their countries, which is what their preference is. We need to find ways to address multiple different challenges to our societies and recognize that climate change is a stress multiplier. Are there um, specific populations that are at greater risk, say, for example, um, pregnant women? There's real risks with pregnant women. There's a growing number of studies showing that during the last period of pregnancy, and it's still being defined, during heat waves, we'll have more low birth weight babies, so babies that come early and are small then. And there can be consequences for those children for for years, depending on how it's medically managed. There's also an increase in stillbirths during some periods of pregnancy. And so pregnant women do need to be protected. Outdoor workers, adults over the age of 65, children under the age of one physiologically can't really manage this higher core body temperature. People who take certain drugs like beta blockers or some of the psychotropic drugs reduce the ability of your body to sweat. The list is quite long, which is why we need these comprehensive plans for how to bring together all of our city services so that we can make sure that we do protect people. Just this year, uh, areas in India and Pakistan experienced just scorching temperatures that would be unimaginable And that would have been almost science fiction, but they're, well, living through it right now already in 2022. That's correct. And there is a area of climate science called detection and attribution that looks at these individual events to determine the extent to which climate change could have made a difference. And we know for some of these heat waves in India, the one that we had here in Seattle a year ago, in northern Scandinavia, in Japan, that heat waves have occurred that would be virtually impossible without climate change, that these are climate change-fueled events. And the climatologists tell us we're entering into a period where almost all of our extreme events are going to be made more extreme by our changing climate. How does climate change that might be caused in some other part of the world, how is that an accelerant to a hurricane becoming worse or a heat wave becoming worse? When we think about the distribution of, for example, temperature in our region or the distribution that we were used to when we were growing up, it forms a nice curve. It's called a bell-shaped curve because it looks like a bell. And as we burn more of fossil fuels, we're moving 
the median of that, the average of that to a higher temperature. But at the same time, that higher temperature, the shape of the curve is coming down and flattening and going further out to the right. And we're seeing a much bigger increase in the extreme events than one would have expected just because of the dynamics of the climate system. And the climate system needed to do something with all this energy that we're putting into it. So some of that energy goes back into, say, the Gulf Coast and the waters, and then those waters end up warmer, and the warmer waters are worse for those hurricanes. You're exactly right that those higher temperatures in the oceans are driving the strength of hurricanes. We're not necessarily going to see more hurricanes, but there are going to be a change in the distribution to more intense hurricanes, just as with precipitation. We're seeing about the same number of precipitation events, but a shift to much heavier precipitation events. You know, as you're saying this answer, it's interesting to me because the number of hurricanes that I've covered, there usually is some sort of a plan that kicks in a few days in advance. There, uh, People take it seriously. Infrastructure is moved into place or moved out of harm's way. And we don't really think of heat waves or extreme heat that way. And I guess we're just we're willing to live with the casualties. When we think about some of these large heat waves, for example, the heat dome in Oregon, Washington, and British Columbia, the estimates are being refined, but currently we're thinking about a 1,000 excess deaths. And if we had any other kind of event that killed a 1,000 people in just a few days, we would call it a mass casualty event, but we don't. We don't think about heat as the hazard it can be. It, this week, uh, King County, which houses Seattle, created uh, kind of an extreme heat plan, uh, and that was, I think, their first ever. Um, why did they have to take these steps? We didn't have one last year when we had the heat dome. There was real efforts by King County, by the cities, to do everything they could to help protect people during the heat dome. But these systems require time to put together. When you think about all the different city services you want to have at the table, it's not just the health department or the meteorological department, but you also want the police, the fire department, EMT, your emergency departments, who is responsible for talking with the elderly care institutes, who are the trusted voices for the red line districts. And you start thinking of all the different services, all the different representatives, it takes a while to get everybody together and make sure that you are coordinated on a plan. For example, the city opened some cooling shelters, but how do you find out where those shelters are? How do you get to those? Are you expecting people to walk to the bus when it's 108 degrees and wait for a bus to go to a cooling shelter? Do you keep the shelter open overnight? Our temperatures at night were 80 degrees, which in June is just unheard of here in Seattle. And so making all of those decisions, making sure all of that works together requires time and requires coordination. So it's really important that cities start working on this before they have their first major heat wave so that they are prepared when it does happen. I mean, there have been analysis that show that these extreme heat events are what, they've more than doubled in the last 40 years, and that this is affecting almost a quarter of the world's population? That's correct. And the projections are 
we could have a 15 to 20 fold increase in these events, depending on the extent to which we control our greenhouse gas emissions. 15 so, to 20 fold. Sorry. That's, uh, that's, a, that's a, uh, so, so does that just uh, break that down for me? Are we talking about the increased likelihood of one happening or the increased frequency of it happening? The intensity of these events are projected to increase. So if you look at a one in 50 year heat wave, so a heat wave you'd expect about one every 50 years, what we saw back in the Middle Ages would occur 15 times more often. And we're seeing even more extreme events. A few years ago, there was a heat wave in Scandinavia, and the Swedish Meteorological and Hydrological Institute said that this was a one in three million year event, which is pretty hard to wrap your head around, that these events are so extreme, it's hard for us to imagine. And considering that this is a global problem, this is, and the, the bulk of the carbon that's released into the air is happening from industrialized nations at the United Nations level or the, the climate conference level, what's happening to try to mitigate some of the effects that are disproportionately going to be felt by poorer countries? Under the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change are four different funds that the high-income countries put money into to help with adaptation, which is trying to do things like put in place early warning systems, also to help people in terms of agriculture, water, a whole range of issues, and also to help low- and middle-income countries reduce their burning of fossil fuels, of oil and gas and coal. One of the challenges we see in health, when you look across those funds, less than a half a percent of those funds have gone towards health, that the majority of the funds have gone towards the significant challenges we're facing in food and water security, which is critically important. But we also need that investment in health. And there is starting to be a shift under those adaptation funds to put more funding into the health challenges so we don't have people suffering and dying in heat waves. Now, I know that the UN had cut some of the climate aid to poor countries. What kind of impacts is it going to have? Because as you mentioned, it takes a while for a dollar to translate into policy on the ground. As you said, the low and middle income countries, for most of them collectively, have very low emissions of greenhouse gases. 80% of our emissions come from just 20 countries. And so these countries are coming into the convention and very appropriately saying, we're suffering. In the language used under the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate, climate Change, this is loss and damage, that they're suffering losses and damages, and it's not their fault. They didn't emit these greenhouse gases, and they are collectively have a strong voice in they need to have more funding to help them manage the kinds of crises they're facing because of climate change that they didn't cause. Do you think that there's any sort of a, a, a moment that can impress upon the richer countries the responsibility that they have? There's a couple different answers to that. First is one of the changes I've seen over the last 15 years is climate change is no longer within a country's Ministry of the Environment. 
It's now uh, all of country issue. It's a security issue for many countries. And so this becomes a different kind of negotiation. And so one hears stories about countries like the U.S. going and talking with countries saying, here's some goals we'd like to achieve. And the response from the country is, you need to talk with us about climate change. Hmm. And so it's coming in at a very different level. The second is it can be discouraging looking what's going on at the national level. And I encourage people to look subnationally at all the cities that have set their goals for adaptation and for mitigation, all that's going on subnationally, all that's going on in our businesses. There is so much change, positive change going on, and to pay attention to that positive change and contribute to it is going to help move our politicians at the national level further forward. Professor Christy Ebi from the University of Washington, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for covering this.